Mark chapter 7. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's word. Mark chapter 7. So good to see, see you here on a Labor Day weekend. I didn't know if anybody was coming to church today. Here you are. This is my very last chance to wear this seersucker suit. <laughs> I got to put it away <clears throat> like a pair of pajamas. Got to put it away. Mark chapter 7. Let's start in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 13. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands, stands forever. forever. Let's begin verse 1. <clears throat> now when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come up from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that are defiled. That is unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they, and when they come up from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? He said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making, the, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And there are many such things that you do. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, we come to you. Under the righteousness and only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We offer our prayer to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. To you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us. Bring healing and hope and joy. Restoration. Forgiveness. God, find us faithful. Make us useful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Adonai Judson is probably the most well-known name in the missionary movement. You can find his story in a book called To the Golden Shore. If you like to read, you should read the book To the Golden Shore. Every Christian ought to read that book, whether you think about missions or not. It's a great biography. Adonai Judson, one of the founders of the modern missionary movement, he landed in Calcutta in 1812. He took with him to Calcutta his young and beautiful wife, Anne. His life would be one marked by hardship after hardship. He would be beaten, he'd be hung upside down, he would get malaria, he would have some sort of pulmonary disease. One point he was imprisoned for almost two years and in that prison they kept him in a cell with his 
with a rope or a chain around his ankles and him pulled upside down. Through the course of his missionary ministry, he would end up losing, burying, and doing the funeral for three wives. Multiple, multiple funerals he did for children, his own children. Before it was all over, he would have buried so many people, worked for so long, took him six years in one spot before he ever saw one person become a Christian. But through all of that turmoil and trouble and pain, it was the death of his first wife, Anne. And then six months later, after Anne died, his daughter, his toddler daughter, he dug both their graves and buried them. And it was, it was their deaths, those twin deaths, that, that took Adonai Judson to the very edge of sanity. At one point, he had thought so much about death that he dug his own grave. Some days he would just go and lay in it. And he said he almost lost his faith. But he came to the realization that when when he wasn't holding on to God, God was holding on to him. He had real faith, not in his own ability to believe, but in God's ability to keep. Genuine faith in an all-wise, supremely good God, a loving God who holds us keeps us secure in Christ. That's where we're headed in chapter 7. It's, it's time now to turn the page. Had a lot, of ha a lot of things happen from chapters 1 to 6, and you can feel it in Mark, the page turns. Chapters 1 through 6, we hear and see all of the miracles of Jesus. Mark is establishing for who us who Jesus is. He is fully God and fully man. We see the wonderful Astounding things he does, walking on the water, calming the storm, feeding the 5,000, all of the great miracles, casting out demons. And all of that was part of his earthly ministry. And now Mark speeds us up to the last year of the earthly life of Jesus. Chapter 7, the miracles are over. Now Jesus turns his attention to the necessary, to to what is real, what, what lasts, what's going to hold you up when you feel like you're drowning, you're not going to make it. You see, we got we to get, <clears throat> get past religion and ritual and rules. We got to get to what's real. We got to get past uh, culture and expectations and maybe even values. And let's bore down. This is what Mark is doing. Making us bore down into real faith. Chapter 7 is a shift. And if you're reading, Mark moves quickly. And chapter 7 is just a shift in tone and attention as we peer into the soul of what it actually means to be a child of God. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it 
mean to have real faith? I can give testimony to this. That is that real faith will always get you through. What is this message about? It's about real faith. And the promise is that real faith will always get you through. Now, let's do what we've been doing for the last few weeks. Let's uh, briefly just walk through the passage. It's a long narrative. Let's walk through it so that we all sort of get a feel for what is this about. And then we come back and, and make some applications. And that'll be the sermon. So let's go into it. Join me there. Chapter 7, verse 1. And it starts like this. Now the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders in Judaism at the time. The Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes. The scribes are the scholars. They wrote down and copied the word of God. We are the beneficiaries, because we have a Bible, of those that copied God's word. These leaders, they traveled, the text says, from Jerusalem to find Jesus. They traveled 90 miles. Now think about that. It's an hour, it's an hour and a half in a car. Some of you can make it a little faster than that, but an hour and a half, let's say. An hour and a half in the car. It's about a seven-day journey walking. So these religious leaders are so driven to, to get Jesus, they will walk seven days to get there to spy out. They're going to trap him. They want to find him violating the word of God because that's, that's enough for the death penalty right there. So they go to where the disciples are. Verse 2 tells us, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that are defiled, that is unwashed. Unwashed hand. Now, we see that unwashed. We're thinking about hygiene. We'd like for people to wash their hands. In fact, here, uh, after COVID, we don't even shake hands hardly anymore. Used to part of, there's a lot of you that rejoice in that. A lot of introverts are like, yeah, thank the Lord we're not doing that anymore. Used to part of our church, we come in and we sing a song and we say, all right, let's greet one another. And you walk around shaking hands. And a lot of you are like, I am so glad that we're done with that. Because you think there might be some germs there. That's not what they're worried about is germs. They're worried about ceremony. They're worried about traditionalism. In fact, in verses 3 and 4, what Mark does, this is how we know that Mark wrote this to a Gentile audience. He's having to explain Judaism to the people that are reading this for the first time. This is what he tells the church in Rome. This, this went to the church in Rome. You see, the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are other many traditions that they observe, such as washing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Mark's saying, you get the idea. It's a religious ceremony. Now it goes back to the story. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked him, why do your disciples, really they're after him, but by implication. So why do your disciples, but really you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? It's important you see they didn't say according to what the Bible says. They said, why aren't they living according to the tradition of the elders? They eat with defiled hands because if you cross the elders, you're defiled. You see, they've taken tradition and brought it up to the level of Scripture. Why are y'all breaking what the elders do? Jesus sees right through it. He brings in such an acidic, such a concise, such a hard-hitting statement. 
Verse 6, he said to them, it's good that Isaiah wrote what he did. It's well that Isaiah prophesied of you, you hypocrites. And this is what he used. He uses the Bible. They want tradition, he brings in the Bible. He quotes Isaiah chapter 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrine, teaching as doctrine like it's a creed, the commandments of men. And then he goes into an explanation. He gives them an illustration in verse 8 and 9. You leave the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of man. Here's the illustration. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, here's the fifth commandment. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Wages of sin is death. You break the fifth commandment, you deserve to die. This is Jesus quoting this. But you say... You Pharisees and scribes, you say that if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, and again, he's explaining to the Roman audience, he says that means given to God. So whatever you have gained from me is given to God, then you no longer permit me to do anything for his father and mother, thus you make void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down, and there are all kind of things that you do. Now, what has got Jesus speaking so directly? Chapters 4, 5, and 6, we see this miracle worker, people flocking to him, healing. Now, chapter 7, he's a teacher, and he's finding out who's with and who's without? He's bringing our attention to real faith. And I think there's some things we can learn here about having real faith. Let's see if we can pull them out. We'll start slow and pick up the speed as we go. Here's the first one. Number one, real faith, real faith withstands scrutiny. So we all live in a glass house. Some people resent living in a glass house house. Sometimes if you're a Christian, you hate living in a glass house. You want to pull the curtain. I would say to you, don't pull the curtain. Polish the glass. Let them look. Real faith withstands, you see, scrutiny. Verses 1 and 2 says, the delegation from Jerusalem came to find Jesus. They traveled 90 miles. They're Pharisees, religious leaders, and the scribes. Those are the scholars. And they are there not just to debate, they are there to spy. They are there to set a trap. And they say, verses 1 and 2, why are your disciples, and by implication you, why are you not keeping the tradition? They didn't say, why aren't you keeping the law, the tradition. And in verses 3 and 4, Mark explains to the Roman church why this is such a big deal. Why the Jews think this is such a big deal. Because they have created something. We'll get to it. If you want to put it on them, if you're keeping notes, you can put Mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-A, or Talmud. That's a collection of Jewish writings that were commentary on God's law that started to be a way to be righteous is following the commentary and not the law. And Jesus is cutting right through it. What is important and what is not important. 
Why on a Sunday morning do we do the things that we do? What's important about what we do? What's not important? Why am I wearing a suit? Why is Gerald wearing skinny jeans? Why? (laughs) What's important? What's not important? What what part is fashion? What part is is necessary? You see. And, And so often in religious circles, especially in the church, we start elevating that which is not important to the position to that which is important. It's important for us to think through, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we start the service off with reading the Bible? Why do we sing the songs that we sing? It's important that we have an understanding of why when it comes to to life. So that we might make a defense for the hope that is within us. So that we are not elevating the things of man to the position of the things of God. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees had done. They'd taken the tradition of the elders and they were saying to Jesus, why aren't you doing what has become our tradition? And Jesus is saying to them, you have completely misunderstood. Real faith, you see. It's able to stand up to scrutiny. Let's see if we can keep going. we get bogged down there. Let me give you a second one. Number two. Number two, real faith hates legalism. Real faith hates legalism. It's legalism in verse 5 when Jesus starts to ask the questions. Or they ask him the questions in verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes, they asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? You see the legalism? In verse 5, what they're asking the tradition of the elders, it's those two words I gave you, the Mishnah or the Talmud. All that is is a collection over the years of writings that were, they were written to help people live in a way so you don't break the law of God. But what happens is over the centuries, you had more and more of the Mishnah or the Talmud or the rules that kept you from the law of God, that that became then for people the law of God. And the commentary and the rules around the law of God became like the law of God. It's it's the difference between tradition and traditionalism. Tradition and traditionalism. So tradition can be a really good thing. We need to not uh, be angry with tradition. We all have traditions. It can be a healthy thing to have family traditions. It can be culture building in a church. We have traditions at Hickory Grove. Saturday started college football. There are all kinds of traditions that go with college football. Some of the traditions can help and be solid. But traditionalism says if you don't do this, then you are not worshiping. And their question, verse 5, their question is not why are your disciples breaking the law of God. Their question is why are your disciples breaking the tradition of the elders and, and by doing that, eating with defiled hands? Well, the Bible, the Old Testament, Moses, the law of Moses, 
never speaks of ordinary people having defiled hands. If you want to go back to the law, the Old Testament law mandated that the priests were to wash their hands before entering the holy place. But there is no law that requires ordinary people to do a ritual washing. But the elders had built in this commentary and this thought to keep you from the law that you should, if the priest did it, you should do it too. You see, the elders had gone further than God and made their tradition binding on the people. You understand that's legalism. Legalism majors on the minors and misses God. Legalism elevates what is human above what is divine. And it becomes a form of idolatry. You know why? Because legalism has you... Worshiping a God that's not in the Bible, it's a God that you've made. In, in legalism, you can, you can measure your goodness. If there are rules and you're a good rule keeper and you're a list maker, you can meet those rules. You can feel good about yourself and, and you have met the requirements. You, you, can be like the, you can be like the Pharisee praying in the temple. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people extortioners and the unjust and the adultery, or even like this tax collector. I know the rules. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on all that I get. Legalism is an enemy of grace, you see. Legalism tells you that you can do some things and if you do those things, you actually are in right standing with God. That is not Christianity. That's much closer to being karma. Karma says you do good, sooner or later, good's going to come back to you. You do something bad, that's going to come back. Which is a great thought. I would love for that to happen. It's not what the Bible teaches, though. That's not Christianity. Christianity says all of my, fil- all of my righteousness is like filthy rags. That there's nothing I can do to earn the favor of God. There's no rule I can keep. There's no niceness I can show. That it, is, that it is by God's grace. It's only by God's grace that I am saved. Through, through the faith. Here's what I believe. I'm, by God's grace, I have been saved through faith in Jesus. The grace that Jesus lived in a way I can't. He did that for me as your representative. Jesus lived perfectly. The grace that says that on the cross, Jesus goes and takes the wrath, the judgment. God places the judgment for our sin on Jesus. Now look, I, I think there is, a, there's a, there is a difference between being legalistic and being faithful. I don't think that it is legalistic to seek to be holy, to find ways to walk in holiness, to live above reproach. That's not legalism. That's just Christian good sense. Legalism is thinking your way of life has gained you some favor. This morning, if you're, let me explain. If you're not a Christian, I want you to understand Christianity. Because sometimes legalism comes off as Christianity and it's not. I don't want you to think that being a Christian means that, uh, that if you can do some good things, God will love you. That if you do enough good things, at the end you'll go to heaven. 
that if you have the scale weighted with enough good things, it'll weigh, you'll get the green light and be let in. That is not. There are not enough good things for you to do. But God is good. In fact, the Bible teaches that, that, that God is the good and holy creator who created you in his image. You deserve respect because you have the image of God in you. That image of God in you, however, is not pure. It's been defiled by sin, your own sin. There's not a person here that would say, I'm, I'm, I've never sinned. We, we recognize we are, our conscience has told us we are sinners. That sin is not just a bad decision, wrong choices. That sin is a, an affront. It's a crime against God. And we understand justice. Crime must be punished. The Bible says that the wage of sin is death. But God is not just a just God. He is also a loving God. Sees us in our predicament that we cannot pay the price. So in order to redeem us, to get us, to save us, in order for us to be able to go to heaven where he is holy and we are not, he gives us Jesus, the God-man. It's important we see Jesus as the God-man. Jesus lives perfectly. He, that's why he's so angry about the tradition because they're, they're, they are misrepresenting God. Jesus comes and lives perfectly. He keeps all the law of God. He does it in a way that is joyful for him. He does it like we should have if we didn't sin, but we sin. Jesus comes as the representative man. He lives in your place. And at the cross, the reason that Christianity goes to the cross is because it's at the cross. That's where the judgment of God for all the sins, your sins, that judgment will fall on Jesus. He takes and stands in front of the judgment. So it doesn't doesn't hit you. Jesus takes that judgment. If you are a Christian right now and you've, you've done something terrible you, and you're going through something hard and you feel like you're being punished, you should know you're not being judged for your sin. All of your sin and the judgment for it goes on Jesus at the cross. That's where the judgment is. Jesus died. The wages of sin is death. He died so we wouldn't have to. God raised him from the dead three days later. Did so on a Sunday. That's why we go to church on Sunday. God raised him from the dead on a Sunday. It is a sign that the, the sacrifice worked, forgiveness is granted. And now to appropriate that, to make that information your own means believing it. Turning from your sin and saying, you mean to tell me that there's somebody that will take that judgment away and the guilt away? I want Jesus to do that for me. That's how you become a Christian. That's how your faith becomes real. You see, real faith, <clears throat> real faith withstands scrutiny. Real faith hates legalism because we love grace so much. Let me give you a third thing to consider as you read this passage. Number three, real faith loves the word, loves the word of God. Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites because of what they're doing with the word of God, which is so ironic because the scribes were the ones that copied the word of God. So what does Jesus do? He knows they would understand and know the Bible. So in verses 6 and 7, he starts quoting. See what he says? Verse 6 and 7. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. He takes what Isaiah said about hypocrites and he applies it to them. 
And then in verse 8, look what he says in verse 8. He uses the analogy that you would get in marriage. You leave God and you cling to men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tr tradition of men. He takes the imagery of, that comes from creation that a man would leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And he says, that's what you've done. You've left the commandment of God and you are clinging to what men have made up. Verse 9, he says, you've rejected God. And you've established the elders. Down in verse 13, he says, when you do these things, you have made it empty. You have emptied out the word of God. You see Jesus himself. Why do we do the things? Why did, why did Kyler stand up and read the Bible with such enthusiasm? Why? It's God's word. Amen. Why am I calling your attention to the Bible? Because a sermon shouldn't be opinions and stories from a preacher. It should be God's word. Jesus himself is saying to the scribes, when Isaiah talks, he's talking about you. You're trying to throw out the Bible for tradition. Something that reminds us that church traditions, that family traditions, that cultural traditions, that weekend traditions must all come under the authority of the word of God. Real faith loves the word. Let me give you a fourth one, a number four. I need to pick up the pace a little bit. Real faith. Real faith takes responsibility. Takes responsibility. Notice what the scribes and the Pharisees were letting people get away with. You have to follow it uh, pretty, pretty closely. Now, to make his point here, Jesus uses one of the most egregious abuses of the day. Let me, let me go through it and start in verse 9. <clears throat> He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. It's a clever way, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So here's the commandment of God, verse 10. Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. That's the commandment. It's the fifth commandment. It's important. Honor your father. Even now, we know that is right to honor your father and mother. But you say, the contrast, you see it in verse 11? Jesus says, that's what the commandment is, but here's what you're doing. You say that if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, dedicated to God. Now, the understanding is that a mother and father would get to a certain age. Here's the retirement program. Maybe we should reinstate it as they get older. I think it's probably good. Reinstate this retirement. As you get older and you're no longer working, the obligation was to honor your father and mother. You would make sure they would be taken care of. That's, that's fulfilling the command. Now the elders have said, you can say that the money it would take to take care of them has been dedicated to God, is Corbin. And Jesus says, here's what you're doing. You are manipulating the system. You are finding a loophole so you can keep the money and say you're doing something for God and in so doing, what you have done is actually broken the commandment. Jesus just exposes that. Because what you've done here, you're not taking the responsibility. And what real faith does is it, it sees the commandment and takes responsibility. We don't take 
tradition. We don't find a way out. We don't raise it up to the level of God's word. We take God's word. We stand under its authority and we live in obedience. Don't look for acceptable loopholes in God's design. We, we turn to the one who kept the commandment in place. I'll give you one last one. Make this. No, this is on the five, isn't it? Gosh, I, need, I do need to spin up. Let's go. Number five. <clears throat> How many do I have? Do you all know? No, I only got five. All right. Relax. We can do it. <laughs> Number five. <clears throat> Number five. Real faith, real faith hates hypocrisy. We hate it. You hate it. There's a reason that for you the, the worst insult would be for somebody to call you a hypocrite. We hate. Real faith hates why? Because the word, even the word itself, the Greek word, is play-acting. The word hypocrite. I mean, even in our culture, we could use it today, and you know exactly what it means. Look at the passage up in verses 6 and 7. And Jesus, he quotes Isaiah 29, and he uses two words there. I'm going to call attention to two parts of the human body that you'll see described in verse 6. This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. We understand that comparison. We, we use it all the time in colloquialisms. You might hear somebody say, well, talk is cheap. Or I used to hear it a lot. Um, he talks to talk, but does he what? Yeah, you know that. We understand this. And, and the question we're asking is, is their Christianity real? We've seen it. We've seen it a hundred times over. In inflated church roles, false conversions, easy believism. It, or, or it works itself into, in more insidious ways, it works itself into the church where you've had it happen to you, where somebody has this outward appearance of actually being a Christian, you believe that they're a Christian, but it's play-acting. See, God looks at the heart. I mean, isn't that what the Lord said to Samuel? Samuel is seeking a king for Israel. He wants Eliab to be the king. Look at Eliab standing there, tall with that square jaw. He looks like a king. And what does the Lord say? The Lord says to Samuel, Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The scribes and the Pharisees in this story were obsessed with the outward ceremonial cleanliness. And Jesus is saying that the religious niceties don't have value compared to cleanliness of the heart. He's telling the Pharisees, your worship is useless. It's a failure because it doesn't come from the heart. That's what I want. That's what I, that's what I want for you. A heart that is surrendered to God in Christ no matter the cost or, or inconvenience. A heart and a life that is gripped by real faith. Because real faith 
will always get you through. Would you join me now? We pray together and ask God for real faith. With your heads bowed this morning, we'll go to the Lord in a moment of prayer. Part of our tradition here, part of our tradition that helps us is singing a song that serves as an invitation to give you a chance to respond to what you've heard. To have a pastor pray with you, to have someone lift you up to the Lord in prayer. We do that through singing. We'll all be standing in a moment singing, and we'll invite any of you to come forward right down here. That, that tradition extends to standing in the lobby. Our pastors will be there standing in the lobby, giving you a chance if you'd like to meet with, pray with, talk about what does it mean to trust in grace and abandon legalism. What does it mean to give my life to Jesus? We want to help you with that so that your faith might also be real. Father, thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the church, Lord. I want to thank you for the church. I pray you would call people into the fellowship here of Hickory Grove. That as you do, you would find us faithful, preaching the grace that you've given us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.